I invite you to open the Word of God to 1 John chapter 5 this morning, 1 John chapter 5, today verses 14 to 21 as we conclude this letter that we have been working through. So 1 John chapter 5, as we read, we'll step back and sneak a verse, verse 13, Uh, from 1 John chapter 5, so let's read verse 13 uh, down to verse 21. If you wouldn't mind just standing one more time as we read out of reverence for the Word of God, if you're able to stand, we invite you to do that. 1 John 5, 14, excuse me, 13 to 21. John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we may know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, He shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Will you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you for your word, your holy, inerrant, inspired word. Father, we pray today that through your Holy Spirit, that you would take your word and that you would apply it to our hearts, our minds, our lives, our hands, our feet, everything about us. Father, we pray that your word would bring life, spiritual life in Christ, salvation through Jesus Christ, that your word would strengthen us, that your word would lead us into truth and into obedience as it is life-giving. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark. You have not left us to wonder what is right and what is wrong, but you have shown us Christ. For these things, we give you all praise and all glory. In the name of our Savior, we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. As we see in these verses, John is concluding this masterful little 
letter that he has written to these struggling churches, these churches that have been going through difficulties. He's drawing the book to a close, and as we see, he's giving his final exhortations. It should not surprise us that John affirms many times what these believers know to be true. In fact, there's only two commands in these last verses, a command to pray for a brother in sin and a command to keep ourselves or to keep themselves, keep ourselves from idols. But there are many things that he says we know in these verses. He is summing up. He is assuring these believers. He wants them to realize certain things and make sure they know them. We see him use this phrase, we know, in verse 13, verse 15, verse 18, verse 19, and verse 20. And so he is concluding, he's summarizing, he's exhorting, he's pointing to the truth that he has been teaching them and that we have seen throughout this letter. Last time we saw in verse 13, really what could be the summarizing verse of the book of 1 John, the purpose statement, as it were, for why John is writing these, uh, this letter to the churches. He says in verse 13, I write these things to you who are believing in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. So John the Apostle wrote this book so that those who are believing in Jesus may know that they have eternal life. We could say he wants them to be solidified in their faith, to know they are believing the right message, to know they are believing in the right Jesus, the only Jesus that can save and who Jesus is and what he has come to do, that Jesus as he is clearly taught throughout this letter. The teachers, the false teachers we saw in chapter 2 were a part of this church. They were seemingly believing the proper things, the right things about Jesus as the Apostle John had taught and as the church had received, but they began to believe something different. They began to act differently and they left the church. They went out from the church and they were seeking to pull others from this church into their errors. The Apostle John, as he began this book, he states that he was the one who saw Jesus and the apostles with their own eyes. They touched him physically. They heard his words and the message he delivered about Jesus was true. And so they needed to have confidence that if they were believing in this Jesus, as he stated last time, the Jesus who had come by water and blood, that is the same Jesus who was baptized and the same Jesus, the Son of God, who was crucified on the cross for their sins, then they and we and everyone who believes in this Jesus has eternal life and their sins will be forgiven. Very important things as the Apostle John is speaking, very important truths that he is writing for the early church, for church history, for every history for all of us through all time, us today to hear and to know how it is that we are to be saved and who Jesus is, the proper Jesus, the truth of who he is and what he's come to do. 
So as we conclude this letter this morning, uh, four points to help guide us through as he is going to give this conclusion, four things that help us summarize truths that he has been teaching them and what he's exhorting them to in this letter. The first thing is confidence in prayer, confidence in prayer in verse 14 to 15. In these two verses, John turns his attention to what the believer now has and experiences. So he's speaking here to the believer, what they have and what they experience. The present reality of somebody who is believing in Jesus Christ, the present reality of somebody who has eternal life, two areas of confidence that they are to have. The first is a confidence that God hears in verse 14. John says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So much of the thought of verse 13, right before this, is bleeding over into verse 14. If you are believing in Jesus, the Son of God, all that he came to do, who he is, his life, his death, his resurrection, then you have eternal life. And verse 14, we have confidence, we have boldness that when we ask God to save us, when we pray to him, he hears us, he answers us. We can know with confidence that if we pray for God to save us, he will save us. As we believe in Jesus, he will hear us and he will act favorably towards us, which is what it means here to hear. This confidence before God to save also plays out in the life of a believer in their prayer life, we could say. Confidence in who God is breeds action on our part to come to him in prayer, knowing he hears us because we are coming through Jesus Christ according to his word and his promise. And that is exactly what John is encouraging these believers to in this verse, to pray to God, to know for certain that God hears us, to know for certain that God is at work. Now, when you have prayed to God and God answered your prayer, did you ever struggle and wonder to yourself, did God hear my prayer? Did God hear my prayer? He answered my prayer. I, I'm just struggling to know if he heard it. No, we don't do that when God answers prayer. We don't wonder, did he hear us? It's when we pray and God doesn't seem to answer our prayers. That's when we wonder, did God hear me? Did he hear me? Sort of like when a wife will call out to her husband and there's no response and he's close by and with frustration she wonders in her mind, did he even hear what I said? That's sort of how we can feel with God when our prayers are not answered. That is why John says in this text, if we ask anything according to his will, we are always to pray with the same attitude and heart disposition of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He taught us how to pray the model prayer. He taught us how to pray just by watching his life and how he prayed. In Matthew 26, you will remember verse 36 to 42, where Jesus prayed to God for, to take the cup of suffering from him. You remember that phrase that Jesus prayed in that prayer, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
Jesus took comfort and assurance knowing that God heard him in his prayers and he prayed according to God's will. That should encourage us in our praying as well as we make our petitions known to the Lord. You might think, I don't know if I should pray this because I don't know if it's God's will. We're told here to pray according to God's will. I just submit to you, pray with confidence before God, knowing that he hears you and let God decide if it's his will or not. John is not so much concerned here with us having some sort of super secret knowledge to know what God's will is in any given situation so that we may pray it. John wants the believer to have confidence knowing that God hears us. He hears our requests. Just think about a situation in your own life right now that you're taking to God in prayer. Any type of prayer, something you're praying to God. How would it affect you if after you prayed, you prayed to God, you heard God say in a kind voice, I have heard your prayer. Could we then leave it with God? If we pray to God, asking God, seeking petition for God, and God said, I heard your prayer. What comfort would that give us as followers of Christ? What confidence would we have? What comfort, what peace would we have? And that is Brothers and sisters, the reality of the fact that God hears us when we pray. That's what John gets at in verse 15, confidence that God answers. There's a progression that we see from verse 14 to 15. And verse 15, we see that. He says, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, again, just like in verse 14, I think first and foremost in this verse is the I and the thought from verse 13 of believing in Jesus, of resting assured that we have eternal life in him, that God hears us and answers our prayers to save, for God to save us. But of course, the scope is widened here to the present life of a believer and our praying to God. John is encouraging us to realize when God hears us, we can rest assured that we have the request we have asked of him, things that we have prayed according to his will. Prayer is one of the means God uses to bring about his will in our lives and in this world. God uses that to answer prayer. The Bible doesn't instruct us to not worry about praying. To say, well, God's will is going to happen, so what does it matter if I pray or if I don't pray? The will of the Lord is going to happen. That's not how the Bible teaches us to understand it. The Bible calls on us to pray to God according to his will. God uses the means of that prayer to bring about the answer and his will in our lives and in the world. The Bible doesn't instruct us to not worry about praying because God's will will be done regardless. It calls us to come to him, to pray to him, and to rest assured that God hears. God hears our prayers. And as John is concluding this letter, he is encouraging these brothers and sisters in Christ to come to the Lord with their prayers, to have confidence, to be solidified in their faith, as he says in verse 13. That if you are believing in the name of the Son of God, you are believing in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. 
You have received the forgiveness of sins. And if you come to pray to God, he hears you and he answers your prayer. Come to him seeking his forgiveness. Come to him seeking his will in your life. God hears and God answers. That is what John is doing in these verses. He's encouraging these brothers and sisters in Christ to come to God in prayer. Secondly, we see counsel for sin in verse 16 to 17. John's continuing the theme of prayer in these verses that we see. He's instructing the members of these churches of how to pray for one another. So you kind of see a, um, a little progression that he's making there in our prayer to God and now in the prayer for one another and he's giving counsel to them. In these verses, he gives us two categories of sin that people are committing and his thoughts about how we are to or not to pray for them. First, we see the category of a sin not leading to death, and then we see a category of a sin leading to death. So in the first part of verse 16, John addresses how we're to pray for someone we see in sin. Look at what he says there, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. I think this flows right from God hearing, God answering, the verse previous right there, speaking about, again, salvation in a person's life and praying for them. As we consider what John means by a sin not leading to death, we have to read that in the context of this letter as a whole. I think we could summarize what John means by a sin not leading to death as a sin of a believer. It's a sin that is committed by someone who is trusting in Jesus that John has been writing to here, but who has sinned or who is in sin. John doesn't seem to be speaking about a particular type of sin here or a specific sin. The thing that's focused on is where the sin leads that is being committed. And here it says it's a sin that does not lead to death. So sin that does not lead to death are sins that are repented of, we could say. Sins that are not lived in and willfully wallowed in. John has already said in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A sin that is confessed is a sin that leads to life, not death. Chapter three, verse eight states, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. There's no life in that. That type of sinning leads to death. So what does John say we are to do? What is his instruction to us when we see another believer sinning? Point our finger, turn a blind eye, tell someone else about it, bask in a sense of superiority because we have not committed that sin. Oh, I thank you, Lord, that I haven't done that. No, John says we are to pray for them, to ask God to forgive them, to work in their lives, to turn them to true repentance that they would turn away from their sin, confess it, and that God would have mercy upon them. God uses that prayer, God answers that prayer, and God gives life. 
Now, this doesn't mean here that you're to deputize our, yourself as a sin police and look for other people patrolling the church, watching out for others to sin. No, I can guarantee you, if you're involved in people's lives, and we're commanded as believers to do that, you'll see people sin, right? We know this. Just be a part of the church for any length of time. Others will sin, and I got news for you. You will too. You will sin. Other people will sin with our words, with our attitudes, with our actions. And what are we to do when we see that? Well, the Bible's full of instruction to that, not just this isn't all that we're told here in this passage. Sometimes we're to confront a sin in other believers' lives. Sometimes love is to overlook sin and to, to, to overlook that sin. Love covers a multitude. But here John is saying, look, you're to pray, to pray. I think we could always apply this verse, that we are to pray for our brother and sister when we see them sinning. I just ask you, isn't that what you would want someone else to do to you as you sin? When you sin, would you want someone else to pray to God for you to, Lord, have mercy upon them, forgive them, change them, I pray? I simply say, uh, and we should know, right, that to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? The same response, let's do that for one another. And kind of the body that we see, the church body here, is one that when people sin, there's kind of a reflex to go to pray for one another, to pray to God, to give them life, and for God to answer that prayer. I think these verses, even in and of themselves, would be very encouraging for these churches, Say, look, when you see other brothers and sisters in Christ and you see them in sin, pray. Ask God to have mercy on them, to forgive them, and God will hear and grant that prayer. Second part of this verse and in instruction uh, is kind of the opposite of that, a little, bit, a little bit sketchy as it seems as you read it. John clearly speaks about a sin that does not lead to death, and then he speaks about a sin that does lead to death. He says in verse 16, the last part, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Yikes. So what exactly is John speaking about here? Sin that leads to death. And why, you might wonder, right? We read this, first blush. Why does John say one should not pray for that? Why not pray for that? As you can imagine, much ink has been spilt on this verse. Some say this is the sin that Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 12, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Some say apostasy. Others look at it from the perspective of a believer, uh, kind of like uh, uh, not speaking of spiritual death, but physical death, like in 1 Corinthians 11, taking communion improperly, which led to sickness and death for some. All of those things are true enough in and of themselves in their own context, but we must focus on here, this letter, what John is speaking about. Look at the context of what this book is referring to as a whole, and then assess his teaching in light of other verses of Scripture. Remember, we're in the conclusion here of the book, so John is summarizing, giving final exhortations, and I think in this admonition and in this reality of a sin leading to death, John is speaking first and foremost about the false teachers who had been a part of the church 
but who had accepted a falsehood about Jesus and were seeking to lead others astray in that falsehood. These are those who didn't believe in a water and blood Jesus, as he's been speaking about, but a water-only Jesus. That Jesus was the Son of God at his baptism, but the Spirit of God had left him, departed from him when he died because the Son of God could not die in other such errors. Those who confess to know Jesus and be a believer, but are living in open, willful sin. We've seen that throughout the book those who have their doctrine about Jesus wrong, their lives wrong, their obedience wrong, and their love towards others wrong. That has been, again, something that we've seen over and over. Doctrine, right belief, obedience, not living in sin, and love caring for one another. Might be surprising to our ears, but John says, I do not say that one should pray for that. Why does John say that? Why doesn't he again say the opposite? Do pray for those who are rejecting the truth and living in disobedience. In short, I think John is focusing his pastoral attention on strengthening the fellowship of those who remain in these churches. He is not focusing on praying for those who have willfully believed a lie, who have left the church, trying to take others with them. He's not focusing on those who rejected or downplayed the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. John is simply saying, I am not saying that you should pray for that. That's not the point here. That's not what I'm talking about. His point is that you should pray for one another and God will answer that prayer. Pray for one another, God will answer that. Now do note that John does not forbid praying for those possibly sending a sin to death. John is not saying that. He doesn't put a moratorium on all prayers for those like the false prophets. He's just not addressing that situation here. He said, I'm not saying that you should pray for that. Take that within context of what he is talking about, about praying for other brothers and sisters and God answering that prayer. He's saying, I want you to pray for that. I want you to pray for one another. I'm not talking about these other people who had left God might or might not bring them back. It's in a similar way Jesus focused on his disciples in John 17, 9, where he said he did not pray for the world. Jesus said, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. But this doesn't mean that Jesus is indifferent towards the world. So John is focusing on those who are remaining, who are trusting in Christ, living for him, yet also sinning. Maybe in that light, you can see how these verses would have been encouraging to them, that they would be strengthened to pray for one another, that they would be assured that they are in fact living in life and not death. As John is writing to those believers, he's saying, look, I want you to pray for one another. God is going to answer that prayer. When you see another believer who is trusting in Christ, who is living in obedience to him, you see them sin, pray for them. God will answer that prayer. When you see others like this who have walked away 
from Christ, these leaders here who are going away, I'm not focusing on that. I am focusing on you and these churches. I am telling you, pray for one another. And then kind of in conclusion, verse 17, he says, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. That word for wrongdoing is the same word used in 1 John 1, 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all wrongdoing. It's the word unrighteousness. All unrighteousness is sin, he says here. But there is sin that does not lead to death. So we must take these things in context in these verses as he is talking about here. I don't think John is speaking, addressing somebody who has believed in Jesus and they're seemingly walking away from the faith. By all means, we are to pray for such a one. Maybe whose faith was weak or not there. We are to pray, God, bring them back. We are to pray for repentance upon that person. John here speaking, he's talking here again in the context of these verses, those who have left, who has gone out, and he said, I'm focusing on you in the church here. I'm telling you, pray for one another. I'm not necessarily saying that you should pray for these false leaders who've gone out. They've kind of made their bed. They're seeking to pull others away. I'm telling you, pray for one another. All wrongdoing, all unrighteousness is sin, but there is sin that doesn't lead to death. I'm telling you here to pray for that. Pray for one another. This brings us to our third point, which is conviction of belief in verse 18 to 20, where John begins each of these verses with the phrase, we know. As he is concluding this letter, again, he's driving truths home to these beloved church members. He's encouraging them. He is exhorting them at, some, at the same time, encouraging and exhorting, telling them, listen, brothers and sisters, I have been talking about these things and we know that they are true. Remain in them, continue to believe them, hold fast and persevere. That's the tone of these verses. John first speaks about us being born to obedience in verse 18. So all these are gonna be repeated themes of the book that we've seen over and over and over throughout these last months. Born to obedience in verse 18, John says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. John again emphasizes that a Christian is someone who has been born of God, even as he, how he refers to a believer. That is, God has given us new birth. God is the one who has saved us. The Bible couldn't be any more clear even in how it references believers. And we need to be constantly reminded this as followers of Christ. We have not saved ourselves. It is God who has saved us and it is by his grace. And John emphasizes that the believer is someone who does not live in their sin or is comfortable with their sin. They are someone who fights sin. There's a difference between a believer and an unbeliever. The believer is someone who seeks to live in obedience to God's instruction, someone who has been born of God and produces the fruit of God in their lives. Because they have been born of him, we are children of God. And if the same Holy Spirit of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same Holy Spirit that is in each and every believer, that's gonna do something to you. 
That's going to have an effect in your life. It's going to produce fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold, but there's going to be something that is going to be at work in our life. About this believer, John says that he is being protected by he who was born of God. Just as the Nicene Creed has taught us from 325 AD, Jesus was begotten, not made. Jesus always was. He came to take on human flesh at a point in history, but he never was made or created. He always was. And it says here, and he protects us. He protects us. He protects the one who is believing in Jesus who has eternal life, who sins, sins that are not to death, whom other people pray for and God answers their prayer and their life. Jesus protects us. He watches over us. It says here the evil one does not touch him, meaning ultimately to destroy him. The evil one isn't able to destroy him. This is a very similar to the ending of the Lord's prayer. Jesus says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's the same thought here. He is the one, the evil one does not touch him. It is, we are protected by Jesus. What beautiful words of assurance for the believer in Christ. Beautiful words knowing that as we follow Jesus, we come with our sin to Jesus, we are changing we are being made into the image and likeness of God. God is protecting us. The evil one is not given ultimate authority over us. Second thing John emphasizes is our belonging to God, verse 19. He says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John uses the phrase from God 16 times in this letter. If those in the church are receiving the truth about Jesus, they are, quote, from God. But the world is different. John reminds us of the duality between the fallen worldly system which rejects Jesus and those who have received him, who believe in him, who live in obedience to him. As we saw in chapter five, verse one to five, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. We are victorious in Christ. We are from God, the whole world, the worldly system that rejects Jesus and his word, as he states here, lies under the power of the evil one. Then verse 20, John emphasizes the content of our faith. In verse 20, this has been the heart of the letter, many, these three things Believing in the right Jesus, rejecting the false teachers, the ones who've gone out of the church that we saw in chapter two, those who didn't remain, those who didn't persevere in their faith, those who proved themselves to be ultimately unbelievers, those who did not let the truth of God abide in them, but they rejected, they sinned, they lived in their sin, they continually rejected the Jesus John spoke about. They believed falsehood about Jesus and sought to lead others into that falsehood. John says into that, and we know that the Son of God has come. How beautiful a statement. You could do a whole sermon on verse 20. We won't do that. 
But just a beautiful statement that the son of God has come in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God has come. He has come to this earth. He has come for us. He has come to redeem us. This is usually we focus upon this fact at Christmas when we realize and we confess that truth that God has come. He's come to us. What beautiful truths we see him hitting at and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus, the son of God, has come. He has come for us and he has given us understanding. What type of understanding is being spoken of here that Jesus has given us? Understanding in our math classes that we might pass? Not necessarily, no, sorry, right? You gotta, you, that's salvation by works right there, right? You gotta, you gotta work for that. That's, there's no grace in numbers, no grace in numbers. We digress. Jesus has given us understanding to know the most important thing in life that we must understand. That we might know that we are sinners to know how that we who have broken the law of God might be forgiven of our sin. That is why Jesus has come for us, to give us understanding and knowing how to be forgiven of our sins and to have eternal life. Jesus came for that. If you're here today not trusting in Jesus, maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a believer just know from the word of God that that is why Jesus has come. He has come to save. You hear this language of to save and salvation and redeeming and redemption. It's because we are in sin. We have fallen short of God's word, his instruction to us. Our conscience points us in that reality, in that life. We have broken God's law but Jesus lived in perfect obedience he came to live in perfect obedience and he came to die as a sacrifice in our place as a substitute he was raised on the third day victorious over the grave and that is our hope Jesus has come to give us understanding how do we receive what Jesus did on the cross some 2,000 years ago an act that happened in the past, the life and obedience of Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection. How can we receive that? You believe the promise of God to save and he will save. To believe in Jesus. He has come to give us that understanding. I exhort you today, encourage you today, believe in Jesus, the Jesus that John and the word of God speaks about that we might know the truth, that he is true God, that we might have eternal life. It is only found through Jesus. If we have Jesus, we have the Father. If we have Jesus, we have eternal life. John piles these concluding truths on top of these believers encouraging them to hold fast to these things, 
persevere in these things, persevere in the faith, realize you have the truth. You have the truth, you have the truth about Jesus right before us in this very letter of what he has come to do. Many things in this world contradict this, say that is not true, say this is a falsehood. They come, come against these things and try to have you either believe in something else for salvation or to just believe the whole thing's messed up to begin with and it doesn't really matter. We're just a part and we're just, we're just here and we're going about life, whatever, pick your, pick your falsehood, right? There's many of them from the word of God. He says, John says, we know the truth. We know eternal life. It is through Jesus Christ. Just as John opened the letter, he had seen, he had heard, he had looked upon, he had touched concerning the words of life. John proclaimed that to them and to us so that we might have fellowship with the Father and with one another through Jesus. It's in this vein that we come to the best little closing of any New Testament letter. That's just my opinion. John's abrupt little ending in verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. You say, I didn't know we were talking about idols. We've been talking about idols the whole time in this letter. Before that, we see John's love for these churches one more time shine through. His heart goes out to them, even in how he refers to them, little children. It's a term, it's endearment. Speaks about the fellowship that they have through Jesus Christ. And he commands them, keep yourselves from idols. False views of Jesus, that's what he's referring to here. What you think you should believe about Jesus, keep yourself from that. Keep yourself from that. Keep yourself from your heart who says, I think this is what my heart leads me to believe about Jesus. It feels so good for me to believe this about Jesus. It's what, it's what I, this, is the, this is my type of God. This is how I would receive Jesus, for Jesus to do this and for me to come to him like this. That's how, that's how I think this should happen. Or some other person that says, no, this is how that should happen. He says, keep yourself from that. Keep yourself from that. Come to Jesus as he has given to you in this letter. This Jesus of what he's done and how we are to live. Keep yourselves from contra uh, being contradicting that. Keep yourself from idols, false views about Jesus, from error, from rejecting the Jesus that John has been writing about. Because if you reject this Jesus, if you reject the truth about him, if you reject the fact that we are not to live in our sin, if you reject the fact that you can live without loving your brother and sister in Christ, you believe that you can live and believe something different than this, then you are indeed worshiping an idol of your own making. Because that's not the Jesus of the Bible. So brothers and sisters, let us give ourselves over to believing the truth about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Let us not deceive ourselves into thinking it is okay to live in sin. Let us realize that to love God is to necessarily love our brothers and sisters in Christ as we've seen repeated over and over in this book. 
Let us come worship the Jesus that has been given to us and who has come to redeem us and give us eternal life. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this letter and for your word, which is truth and speaks truth into our lives. Again, Father, we thank you that you have not left us on our own to wonder about these things. And Father, we come to you as those who are sinners, who still fight and struggle with sin. May we follow the instruction, even in this book of 1 John, to confess our sins, to have confidence that you are faithful and just to, for, to forgive us of our sins. Help us to have confidence that it is only Jesus, the Son of God, who gives eternal life. Father, would you help us to persevere in this truth and would you help us by your grace to live in obedience to it and to share this news with others as you have called us to. We thank you for your word. It's in the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.